honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, the UTA College of Science is focusing its lens on its Hispanic faculty, staff, and students. UTA, a Texas Tier 1 and Carnegie R1 University, carries a Hispanic serving institution designation and is one of the most diverse public campuses in the nation. Members of the Hispanic community are learning and doing great science at UTA, including College of Science Senior Associate Dean and Mathematics Professor Minerva Cordero, a respected and awarded educator and champion for underrepresented minorities and women in STEM. Dr. Cordero discusses Hispanic Heritage Month while sharing her story and work in this edition of Voices, thoughts from maverick scientists leading the charge to innovate, discover, and learn. Good morning, I'm Minerva Cordero. I'm the Senior Associate Dean in the College of Science at the University of Texas at Arlington. I'm also a professor of mathematics and a distinguished teaching professor at UTA. And on top of that, I'm also a mathematician. So I have these different um, hats that I wear. And uh, most important, I am of Hispanic heritage. I am from Puerto Rico. I was, was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And I came to the United States for my doctoral studies uh, because at that time there was no doctoral program in mathematics in Puerto Rico. Hispanic Heritage Month has is, is become a very uh, important part of, of my activities, especially as I look into highlighting the work of other Hispanic mathematicians and scientists uh, and uh, to show how, how much Hispanics have contributed to the advancement of science. And this is something that is not necessarily known by everyone. Since a young age, I enjoyed mathematics. It was something that somehow came naturally to me. And actually, as a high schooler, I enjoyed all subjects and I learned, enjoyed learning everything. But mathematics was the one that I liked the most because it was the one I didn't really need to be memorizing anything. It was just all about applying the logic. When I started college at the University of Puerto Rico, I did not know what kind of a job I would have with a degree in mathematics, but I just wanted to learn more about the subject. And once I started, then I completely fell in love with it and wanted to continue to learn more mathematics. It was not an easy thing to do in Puerto Rico because, as I said before, we did not have a PhD program. But thanks to the support and the mentoring of one of my professors, she encouraged me to apply for a National Science Foundation Fellowship and to apply to the United States to several PhD programs. And so I did that and I came to the United States with the National Science Foundation Fellowship. Education was the most important thing. Unfortunately, my parents were not allowed to to go to school. Um, actually, they both just not in even complete elementary school because they were needed to work in, in their family uh, farms. But my mother emphasized education as the key to changing the world, the key to contributing, but also the, the key to moving yourself forward. And so we are a family of six children. We are four sisters and two brothers, and all four sisters have university degrees, graduate degrees in a STEM area, which is pretty impressive, um, given that that was not what uh, my parents had not uh, been privileged to go to college. 
Yeah, in my earlier years, it was really my older sister. She started college very early and she she was amazing. And then my second oldest sister also, she started at the university and she started, she, she, when she started, she majored in mathematics. So they were somehow the people that I look up to. And then all of my teachers. And very fortunately for me, I grew up in Puerto Rico where everybody was Hispanic. Everybody was Puerto Rican. And so there was no sense of their limits to you because you are Hispanic or because you are a woman, actually, either. And so we, like I said, all sisters, we went into STEM fields and I was nothing to that we would single us out or in any particular way because everyone at the university, my professors, my teachers in school, my professors at the university. And so that was a really um, good thing for me that I'm very thankful for. It was a very homogeneous society. When I went to Berkeley, it it was a really an eye-opening. See, I grew up at at home in Puerto Rico in the countryside, and I lived at home with my parents. That is the way it's done uh, in most uh, Hispanic families. You just stay home, actually, until you not even leave for college. When you leave for college, you still live at home. And it's pretty much either when you get a job or when you get married that you leave home. So I lived at home with my family in the countryside. And then all of a sudden I find myself at Berkeley, in Berkeley, California. And um, that was, that was, culturally interesting, but also the challenging that the academics uh, posed on me. You see, at the time I didn't realize what a top top school Berkeley is not only in the United States but in the whole world and so my classmates were from every were all over the world and they were the top other classes there and so it was pretty an interesting uh, situation to be at because where I came from I was the best and then now here I am where all these people really know so much more um, than I do uh, but also culturally again like I said well the fact that I had an accent the the fact that I was different the fact that I was Hispanic is something that was noted uh, which I was not ex- exposed to that. I mean, we will never have a celebration of Hispanic heritage in Puerto Rico because that would be all of our heritage. Uh, I mean, so coming to the to to Berkeley, that, that was something that was very interesting. And I felt very intimidated uh, by the professors uh, there at Berkeley, even though my own, the professor that I did my master's research with, uh, Dr. Saracen was very welcoming and very kind, but I'm sure that even for himself, he didn't, he had not interacted with another student like myself. With the background and the training that I had, that really was missing a lot. I mean, the the rigor of the courses I've taken in Puerto Rico was not the same level of the rigor of the best court, uh, universities in the United States. So, yet I didn't give up. I I kept going. When I went to the University of Iowa, um, it was a very small, small town. um, And uh, interesting enough, there was a large number of students from Latin America. Um, The University of Iowa has done an effort they were really pioneers in this of attracting um, Hispanics or African-Americans and under the represented students. So there I met students from different countries. We all spoke Spanish and there was a much stronger support network there from the students um, at the University of Iowa. I 
totally immersed myself in, in, in my studies. And so what was happening around there was not affecting me so much because it was a small, small t- uh, town. Um, and then I had all of these kind of what, what seemed to me as familiar faces. Also, the professors seemed more approachable. So I, I would I felt comfortable going to their offices and, and, and asking. And again, it's possible it's because I already had experience, having been at Berkeley, having gotten my master's already. But it just seemed like it was a much easier way for me to mix with the students and, and make friends and, and talk to the professors. So it was a much better experience um, at that time. Uh, I'm a finite geometer. I study finite geometries. And, and one of the questions that people ask me say, why do you say geometry is plural? I thought there was only one geometry. And, <laughs> and this is true. Most people only know the geometry that we learn in school, um, in high school, which is Euclidean geometry. It's the geometry of Euclid, and that has the Pythagoras theorem, that every, that's perhaps the one theorem that everyone knows. There are other geometries. Uh, that come from very uh, making variations in the assumptions. You see, in every uh, geometry, there are assumptions. There are these postulates that we call them, uh, which are assumptions that you make. For example, in Euclidean geometry, the one that you study, you have parallel lines. So there is possible to have to have lines that never meet. Um, there's another geometry that says no, that's not possible. Lines will always meet. It doesn't matter if they appear to be parallel, at some point they're going to meet. So then there's a new geometry in there. We have all kinds of different geometries. And then what I study, which are really geometries um, in the sense that we talk about points and lines and planes and spaces, but it's really a finite geometry, which means a line is not like the line that you know that is an infinite line. A line only have a finite number of points. Why is it a line? Because we said these points form this line. For example, the smallest geometry of all has seven points and seven lines. And what are the points? Well, let's say point one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then what are the lines? Well, one line has point one, point two, and point three. Those are the three points of the line. Another one has five, seven, and three. Another one has, so the idea is that any two points have to belong to a line. And in this geometry, any two lines intersect. So this is one of those geometries where you don't have parallel lines, any two lines intersect. And so we study this geometry and then we look at the associated algebra, right? In high school, when you study geometry, geometry has an algebra. How do you describe the points? You give them coordinates and then you have the coordinate system. And so you have the real number. So from what you do in high school with Euclidean geometry, you get to the set of real numbers, which is all the numbers. Similarly, like I just did and I name my points, I have a finite set of numbers associated with the geometry. So I have geometry and algebra together. So every geometry has an algebra associated with it. And again, these are finite algebras. We look into these structures and we, we, we have all kinds of assumptions about it. Do you assume that just like with the numbers that we know, that I can do the operation in any order. You know, if we do three plus five, 
is the same thing as if I do five plus three, right? That's commutative. It doesn't matter what order you do it. Now, when you're subtracting, that doesn't happen. Five minus three is two. But if you do three minus five, then that one is negative two. So it's not the same. So when you're subtracting, the order matters. So then we say, okay, which geometries are commutative? When you can do this and when you cannot do that. And there's several other properties. And the ones that I study that I specialize are non-associative structures. So associativity, and I'm going really, really to the simplest in here. So if I tell you to add 2 plus 3 plus 5, you can say 2 plus 3 is 5 plus 5 is 10, or you can say 3 plus 5 is 8 plus 2 is 10. So it doesn't matter in what order you add them, you're going to get the same answer. That's called associativity. If it's non-associative, the order matters. You have to do it in the order I'm telling you, otherwise you're going to get a different answer. Well, what interests me is those non-associative. I just like this disruptive structures that they don't want to behave the way you expect them to behave. So in my doctoral studies, I look at all of these non-associative algebras and I specifically defined a new class. I said, what if we assume this and this and this. We're going to assume X, Y, and Z. What do we get? And so we study those structures. And do we get something new or do we get something that is already known? And so I spent all of my research as a, as a graduate student my, for my dissertation and then many, many years studying these non-associative structures. They're called semi-fields. Most of the work in this finite geometries is done in Italy. If you want to know what is done or not done, you find out what have the Italians done because they are the ones who do this. Soon after my PhD, maybe I don't know, maybe it was five years later, I don't know, 10 years, I came up with, a. I kept studying these structures and I kept observing a phenomenon. I said, I bet that this is true. This must be true in every case. And so I noticed this is true, and I work with prime numbers. This is true for all of these prime numbers that I can check with that computer. So it must be true for all prime numbers, okay? So I said that, and that became the conjecture. So now I have a conjecture that says all the structures for any prime number that have these properties, you're going to be able to make this conclusion. And sometimes they say in mathematics, it's better to have a conjecture than to have a theorem. <laughs> so a theorem, you, you have the idea, you say, okay, this is what happens, and you prove it. With a conjecture, you say, this is what happens. I don't know how to prove it, but I believe this is true. <laughs> and so I did that. And then, of course, a group of very uh, young, aggressive Italian researchers proved my conjecture. <laughs> in no time and actually expanded it. Um, and so that's kind of one of the, the accomplishments that I'm uh, most proud of was the fact that I was able to, after spending time with the geometry, with the structures, I was able to see what could happen in general, even though I couldn't prove it with the tools I had at the time. And so it took these three brilliant uh, young researchers in Italy to prove that. Now, these geometries, like I said, have their algebras. And I'm just looking at them totally abstractly. However, they have applications in industry. One of the applications of these structures is to coding and encoding information. So when you are creating a code, 
to, for example, for cell phone communications or a code for communications that we're doing right now. You have to use some algebraic systems. Many uh, of these uh, algorithms are created using very nice structures called finite fields. Like I said, what I study are semi-fields. They're almost fields, but they're not because they don't have associativity. Well, then these structures are going to create more robust codes that are harder to decode. So the research I do, some people take it, and then now they're working with coding, encoding, safety, cybersecurity, right? I don't get to that stage. The closest I've been, uh, the last two PhD students that I directed, they work more with those algorithms and those structures. Still looking at the algebra, not necessarily how you translate it into the, the coding or encoding uh, algorithms, but just looking at what are the possibilities, what are the options, how, how in, in other words, how messy can the algebra get still be an algebra. So now the code will be really, really hard to uh, decode. My discipline is kind of at the intersection of algebra, geometry, combinatorics, and computer science. Whenever, anytime you're dealing with finite structures, you're going to have computers, you're going to have ways of, uh, of dealing with them. But actually, you can think of these geometries as a particular subset of some combinatorics uh, statistical designs. So in statistics, you have this designs, how when you're designing that experiment and you're saying, okay, I'm going to have, let's say if it's in the patients, I'm going to have 50 patients and I have five different treatments, how I'm going to associate a treatment with a patient. You have to create a whole scheme. Who's going to get what, when they're going to get it. From there, you get a structure, you get a combinatorial design. And so those combinatorial design actually started very early on in the 1920s um, when they were looking at, at uh, agricultural crops and they wanted to decide what type of fertilizer, what kind of treatment to do in the different crops. And that's when the first statistical designs or uh, the, uh, design of experiments came about. Well, the geometries are kind of part of that statistics. So I have done some work with one of my colleagues in statistics uh, to look into, into some of these combinatorial designs and see how much, what's the relationship with how much the, the operation is disturbed or has been uh, convoluted so that to the results that you get. So yes, yeah, so it's part of statistics. Um, I also collaborated with a colleague many years ago who was working in control theory. And there again, is the whole thing when you have a finite sets of, of data, as opposed to infinite data, which is kind of the big topic nowadays, then you're gonna, this, this combinatorial design, these this geometries are gonna come in contact. So I did some work with my colleague also um, in control theory. But um, most of my collaborations happen with geometers who are also algebraists who are working in similar stories. I think I'm a, a teacher at heart. I think I was made to be a teacher and to explain things and to make things um, 
understandable to people that don't say understand them. And I'm very fortunate that I, like I said, that math came very natural to me so I can help people uh, with mathematics. So uh, very early on, since I became a teacher, I think that without even knowing it, without reading the research on what makes for effective teaching, I have been an effective teacher. I have been able to get students to get excited about the subject. And I have been able to show at least the students in my class that mathematics is for everyone. Everyone can learn math. And I think that's something that many people don't realize that that they actually can do math. Um, And so I have devoted a great amount of time to seeing what are the most effective ways to teach a particular subject uh, so that people actually understanding. And very early on, I understood that for the young people, you have to tie in the mathematics you're teaching with something they are doing, right? With something that they can connect to. So in calculus, when I'm talking about rates of change, I like to talk about speeding in the highway. And if you enter uh, the highway at one hour and an hour later you exit and you covered more than, let's say, if the speed limit is 70, in this highway and you covered 100 miles in an hour, well, you were speeding at some point because if you were going 70 miles an hour, right, you would have done only 70 miles. And so I talked to them about that. And then if it happens that I have been stopped at that that day, which happens once, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I talk to them and I tell them, how did I talk to the policeman? How did we negotiate? So anyway, I tried to make it very real for them to see that mathematics is real, but also that people that do mathematics, we are just real people like, like any of you are. And especially uh, for women in my classes, we do have as, um, the number of women that pursue degrees in mathematics is a very small number. And actually, I think when I received my PhD in mathematics, um, I at one point I had the data and might be able to get it, but that was a very small number, especially uh, Hispanic women uh, or even Hispanics in general who got a PhD, and I'm talking a long time ago, and still that number has not changed that much. So I really try um, to do that. So learning ways to teach, uh, learning ways that people learn different subjects has been something that I have done throughout uh, my academic career. Now I spend more time. So I was an outstanding teacher. And this is when uh, one of our previous deans, two deans ago, uh, Dean Pamela Yansma, she asked me to come on board into the College of Science as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, because she has seen my success um, in the classroom in getting students excited about the subject. And so that's when I joined um, the College of Science as, as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs because of my successes in, in, in teaching. So So once I was there, then I started looking in general, not just in mathematics, but in science in general. And, you know, one of my first uh, responsibilities was to look into students that were not performing at the acceptable level. So after a certain number of semesters, they would be dismissed from the College of Science because you have to maintain a 2.0 GPA. If you don't have a 2.0, then you cannot remain a science major. And so it was the responsibility of the associate dean to approve those dismissals 
This is how it was done at the time. So the dismissals would come to me and instead of just signing and approving, I wanted to look at each of those students' record and see what were their difficulties? Why were they not making in the College of Science? And what I noticed and surprised me was two things. First of all, a very large percentage were underrepresented minorities, were either African-Americans or Hispanics. That was the first thing. And the second thing, a large number of them were transfer students who had transferred to UTA. And after one semester, after one year, they had to find a new major. And so at that time I said, okay, we, we need to change this. So I have been the, spending more time looking into this. Um, I created a student organization uh, for Latinos uh, in science, SACNAS, the student chapter of SACNAS that I created at UTA to so that students to talk about it. What is it? What is happening? Why are we not being as successful? So I've been doing so many efforts pretty much started stronger since 2013 when I became associate in the college because now I could look at all disciplines. It was not just math. It was all disciplines in the College of Science. I, I, I see the students. I see myself, you know, and when I see a student who doesn't know something, I never think, oh, this student is not capable. The student doesn't know this. I think the student had not been exposed to this before to this level because I know that's what happened to me. It's not that I'm, I don't know it because I'm dumb. I don't know it because I was never exposed to it. Right. And so I can see that. Um, I wrote an article for the, uh, notices of the American Mathematical Society alongside my colleague, uh, Dr. James Alvarez about how do you bring in minoritized populations into that one is specific about mathematics, but it applies to all that. And that's one of the things that, that you talk about. I, I can see that because I experienced this. But then the question is, can someone who didn't experience this still have that same level of understanding and support for his students? And that's what that article was about. And that's what uh, hopefully this book will do is you don't have to have gone through those experiences. You don't have to be a Hispanic mathematician to help Hispanic students, to help them be successful. Because again, my work, I work... Uh, directly with Hispanic mathematicians, African-American students as well, and uh, and women. And so you can work with all of them. Having lived that experience, I know how really what a misconception it is. And then again, like I said, I grew up when we were all Hispanics. And there was a lot of very smart people in my class, and I was very smart too. So what the thought that because you're Hispanic, you're less capable is totally a cultural view in a society that is as, as mixed, as heterogeneous as, as our society is in the United States, but there's no basis for that. And so I really go back to that uh, and I relate to my students. It's very interesting because people tell me, you don't look like a mathematician. <laughs> and it's like, well, I know I'm a particularly a happy person and a very optimistic and I try to simplify things. Um, last week, actually, I met uh, in Dallas with the Charter 100 group in Dallas. Charter 100 Dallas is a group of the one of 100 women philanthropists and leaders in their communities uh, that they get together to see how they capitalize in their knowledge, their leadership, their wealth, really to improve uh, 
society there in Dallas, and they have this charter 100 in different cities. In any case, I met with a group of them and uh, we had a we had a dinner and at the end they say, you don't look like a mathematician. They they told me that because I seem like a happy person who and I explained to them my research about what I do and they were in they were thinking and they kept saying, well that's the thing that when I was taking math, they never explained what does this relate to? What is this useful for? How does this relate to something? So I talked to them, I mean, even about MRI machines, X-ray machines, all of those wouldn't exist without math. Movies, the fact that we can communicate, the fact that you can take a picture and save it in your device and use a very little space, that has to do with math. So I was explaining to them um, how all of that, and they 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 said I, I don't know, seem to be a mathematician. So I guess just my own personality. I'm just very open uh, person and, and and passionate about the things I care about, and I think that that comes comes through. Um, and, and I don't know if it's necessarily being Hispanic or, which I'm sure contributes to that partly. But I guess the other part is just my own personality, which has been really, really helpful for me. Um, it's very interesting, uh, just a, an anecdote. Yesterday, I was tutoring uh, my nephew. He is 16. He's in junior high. And uh, I tutored him. And this morning, uh, and he obviously does not like math, uh, but uh, he sent me a message, said, hi, Inmina, I just wanted to thank you for your help yesterday. I really needed it. Thank you. Sending love, and he sends me love, he sends me all these hugs. And then a few seconds later, his mother texts me, thank you so much for helping Lucas yesterday. It is truly boosting his confidence. Right. And so it's all about that. People have, they don't have the confidence that they can learn math. And that's the one thing that I really work on. Everybody's going to do it. The last class, the large, the last large course that I taught at UTA was a 200 students in college algebra, 200 people in an auditorium, okay, Um, where I needed to have a mic because they couldn't hear me. And I read the evaluations from that course, and I'm just, they, so many of them come, and she makes math fun. (laughs) I should really frame that, because it's like, really, these are college algebra kids. Most of them don't really. I know the math is not their, what they care about, yet they're enjoying the class. And I think that that's part of it, right? Getting them to see this is enjoyable and definitely any of you can learn. I don't care what your background is. From this point on, you're going to learn math and you're going to do fine. So that kind of have been my mission. <laughs> you know, being, being Hispanic, as I said, family takes precedence over many things. And for example... Very early on in my career, I was invited to become an administrator, to become an associate dean, even before I came to UT Arlington while I was at Texas Tech. But at the time, my children were little, and it's like, I'm not going to do that and take it something that's going to take me away. So my family comes first. And because of that, then, uh, you know, some, so you weigh your decisions based on your own uh, career and how you move forward versus your family responsibilities. But that, that applies to so many things, you know, it's like I could spend some more time writing a grant, but I have an aunt or an uncle, for example, when my brother was sick um, in Puerto Rico, that I made so many trips that year. It was not the most productive for me in terms of my research, but it was what I 
what I wanted to do. And I I consider myself fortunate that I'm able to keep those very clearly in my mind, what my priorities are. But I do know that they have taken perhaps an impact in how fast I, I, I have moved in the, in, in the ranks, but I'm fine with it because I definitely want to make sure that I keep that balance. Having grown up in Puerto Rico, my experience of okay, of being a Hispanic person now in the United States um, is very different than those people that grew up in the United States. And I'm thinking the Mexican-Americans that grew up in the United States, especially those that grew up in like in South, in the South, right, where they experienced tremendous amount of discrimination and hardship that I did not experience growing up. So I've learned a lot about this. I've read a lot about the experience of Mexican-Americans growing up in the South, and particularly in South Texas, uh, because their experiences growing up are very different than my experiences uh, growing up. Similarly, the recent book, Testimonios, that shares the the life stories of several mathematicians from different backgrounds. And it's very interesting when you read about the the student or the, the professor that grew up in Colombia or grew up in Venezuela or grew up in Chile, their stories are very different than those that grew up in the United States, being the minority, being right that, that group that is uh, not the, the majority in here. So, um, there is a professor in, at Rice University, Richard Tapia. Dr. Tapia, actually, he is a National Medal of Science. He might be the only Hispanic. He came to UTA and we had a, the National Medal Foundation had a program, an evening with Richard Tapia. And you can find it, an evening with Richard Tapia. The recording is online. And uh, he's writing a book uh, that is about to come out. I've seen several drafts of it that is called The Precious Few. And what he's referring to is those Mexican-Americans or other, uh, also he includes New Yorkans. Hispanic people that grew up in the United States experiencing the discrimination from the moment they were born is a very different story than it is uh, my story or the story of so many others that came for graduate school or some of them came for postdocs or for, for faculty positions. And so our experiences are all very different. But at the end of the day, we're all Hispanics. And so we do have a lot uh, that we share in common. And I think our values, especially the value of the family place for all of us, it's it's one united thing. So this is one of the things that you're going to see throughout the community that family is very important. And then we we extend this. Now we are like an extended family to each other. And that has been very, very rewarding. Um, again, I learned about Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States because this is not something that we celebrate uh, in Puerto Rico. And it's, it's been really, really nice to see the experiences of different people and how being Hispanic has impacted their work, their well-being, what they do, how they contribute to society is is just been very, very rewarding uh, for me to learn all of that. Um, when I was director of the LSAMBD program, uh, that we had funds from the National Science Foundation to have 10 PhD students who are minorities 
And I make it a point to visit with each of them on a regular basis and to see, learn about their experiences. And I would say about half and half or perhaps 60% were African-American, 40% Hispanics. It was very interesting, even again there with the African-Americans and the Hispanics, how much things there are in common between those two uh, groups. And, and I guess from the fact of being minoritized populations, I guess right there, you get some commonality, some common goal. UTA is very fortunate to have some great champions among its faculty and its people. I'm going to start from, with Dr. Michelle Bovadilla, who works tirelessly to bring more Hispanics into education in general. She has the Go Centers in Dallas um, to bring more Hispanics into education. She works with the high schools. She provides training for even how to fill out the college application, how to fill out the FAFSA, how to do all of those things. Dr. Maria Martinez Cosio, who started with other uh, colleagues and got a grant from the Department of Education to start the Idea Center in the library. The Idea Center was a grant given under, because UT Arlington is an HSI, that they could have funds to establish this center that provides tutoring for students and other things to help students success be successful at UTA. So those are two uh, initiatives in there. In science, we have this, the, the student chapter of SACNAS, Society for the Advancements of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, which is fantastic. In engineering, they have SHIPI, the Society of Hispanic Professionals, engineers. So we do have some some leadership um, in different colleges that is helping our students feel welcome and feel that they have a place at the table for these things. So we're doing a lot. Again, I'm very, very happy that we now have a vice president for diversity, equity and inclusion. And uh, I expect that even more greater things are going to happen in terms of recognizing and creating a more inclusive environment for everyone. The fact that UT Arlington nominated me for the If Then initiative of Lida Hill was also a good indication that UT Arlington is really trying to recognize also the work of the Hispanic leaders on campus. And so the, I was selected for that. And the If Then ambassadorship has opened so many doors for me to communicate about the value of education to the Hispanic community. So it has been fantastic. I think that we can uh, continue the efforts that we're doing and we should try to multiply and magnify those, right? And of course, I understand there's resources, right, that you need in order, for example, the idea center that we have in the library. Can we have even more support for students? Can we have more uh, tutors available for the students? Can we do more? Yes. But I understand that uh, resources is a limitation. But I guess we need to continue to to do that, to offer more of those. And and actually, uh, I just saw that uh, the VP for DEI started a new series to educate people about the racism and how do we uh, counteract uh, racism. So I think educating the people about the value of all individuals and the contributions of all individuals, especially Hispanics and Hispanics in Texas. I mean, we we are such a large number of our student population. Yet when you look at the faculty, the numbers are just abysmal. I mean, very, very small number of Hispanic faculty. 
definitely does not match at all the, the, the diversity of our population. So that's one of the things where I would say that UTA could perhaps uh, apply a more aggressive approach to recruit more Hispanic faculty. Um, STEM fields are for everyone. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is. It doesn't matter what schools you have attended, where you have been. Anyone can do STEM and can be successful in any STEM field. You need to do is hard work, perseverance, and kind of ignore what the stereotypes are, what society might be telling you that you can or cannot do. Kind of believe in yourself and trust yourself that you can do it and you will be successful. And there are many examples of people that have made it and that can be any of our of our students. Um, so careers in STEM are for everyone. And really, I know that for uh, Hispanics, they want to have careers and perhaps everyone, but I'm just I just know for sure Hispanic careers that make a difference, that make it better for society. And careers in STEM will definitely do that.